Thank you so much for coming this evening. It's great to see so many people, and I hope we're going to have a really interesting, exciting, and challenging evening together. Um, we've got a very, a very full evening ahead. We've got a video to watch in a few minutes. Um, we've got lots of things we're going to discuss in groups. We're going to do some brainstorming, um, and above all, looking at the impact of our lives on the planet and on other people. So the, the topic tonight is how can we care for creation? When I told Brian I was going to be doing this, he said, are you going to tell everyone to go out and hug trees? <laughs> I wasn't planning to do that, but I can think of worse outcomes. So if you decide you want to leave here and go and hug a tree, then I'd be very pleased. So we're going to start off with, uh, with just getting into our groups for um, probably five minutes or so. Uh, we'll see how we get on. Um, and have a think about this question on the screen. I'll leave it up there. Do we as Christians have any responsibility towards the environment? And if so, what and why? Well, I hope that's got us off to a good start. It won't surprise you to hear that my answer to that question would be definitely yes, as Christians, we do have a responsibility. And I just want to spend a few minutes just looking at some of the clues that the Bible gives us about how we should um, relate to creation. I've used, in the verses that we're looking at, I've actually used the message translation of the Bible, which is a more modern version. I've done that partly just for variety, because we can be quite familiar with, um, with the versions that we normally use, and sometimes it's just helpful to look at it um, in a different version. So the first point is that God created a good world. The Genesis creation account is of order, beauty, variety, abundance. It included water, land, plants, trees, fish, animals, and obviously humans. And we're meant to be living in a healthy relationship with it. And each stage of creation, God said that what he'd made was good. And at the end, God looked over everything he'd made. It was so good, so very good. So we've got a, we've got a good world that we're living in. The second point is that he appointed us to look after it. And I guess if I had to pick one reason why I think we have a responsibility to the environment, this would be it. And God, God, God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, earth itself, and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. Humans are the only creatures made in God's image. And this gives us, I think, a special responsibility to look after the rest of creation. And the message version, I think, makes that quite clear, um, that we are responsible. Some other um, translations put it slightly differently, but in every case, the sense is about servant care. God has entrusted his, his world to us, and we are supposed to enjoy its blessings and make the most of it, but in a way that honours God and honours other people. And the third point is that... God's laws show that it matters how the earth itself is treated and not just its inhabitants. Uh, and there's loads of stuff about this in the uh, early part of the Old Testament and I, I don't, we can't spend too long on it. But just to mention a few things. Um, so in, in Genesis 17, God made a covenant with Abraham um, to give the land of Canaan to the Israelites. And then the following books um, include lots of laws about how this land ought to be treated. And this um, example from Leviticus is, is just one of them. When you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather your crops. Gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. 
so as well as, as well as showing that it matters how the earth is treated, these laws also emphasise that a key aspect of caring for creation is to ensure that everybody has enough, rather than that some people have more than enough and some don't have enough. And this is something that we'll, we'll come back to um, later in the evening. And then the book of Joshua goes on and details the way the land was divided among the 12 tribes um, after the Israelites were led into the promised land and how everyone was expected to share responsibility for it. So there's a sense of it matters how the earth is treated, it matters in a sense of justice and everybody having enough um, and everybody has a responsibility for it. And then lastly, God's plan for redemption includes all creation, not just the people. So in Ephesians we read that he, God, thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. And then in Revelation underneath, Revelation 21, I saw heaven and earth new created. So although our relationship with the earth has been fractured to an extent in the same way that our relationship with God and with each other has been, God's plan is to redeem and restore both us as inhabitants of the earth, but also creation itself. And I think, you know, we're familiar with praying, you know, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And we're familiar with the idea that we have a role in advancing God's kingdom by sharing our faith. And I think in the same way, I'd suggest that we also have a role in advancing God's kingdom by the way that we care for creation in the meantime. So that's just a few thoughts, and I mean, there's much more I could have said and many more verses I could have pointed to about how, how we can relate to creation. We're going to watch a video now um, that's produced by Tear Fund, a charity that many of you will be familiar with. It's a Christian charity that focuses on helping people in need across the world, both materially and spiritually, and they've done quite a lot of work in recent years on issues of environmental care and sustainability. So we're going to, they've produced this video to give a sort of overview for, um, for churches of some of the key issues on this topic. And it sort of connects the environment and sustainability to broader issues, which is where we're going to go next. Hi, my name is Paul Cook, and I'm fortunate enough to be the advocacy director at Tear Fund, which is just about the best job in the world. But that's not the only way in which I've been fortunate. You may not believe it, but I'm actually one of the most fortunate people in the world. I don't know if you've ever done that exercise where you list your blessings before God it can be a really powerful experience. Before the world was made, God already had me in mind and had a plan and a purpose for my life. I was born into a country at peace. I was born in a country of plenty. I was born in a nation where I didn't have to worry about being arrested in the middle of the night because I was the wrong colour or followed the wrong religion or I was the wrong ethnicity. I was brought up in a loving family. I had a good education. I had good health care. I now have a job and great opportunities in life. And if you, like me, were born in a rich, developed nation, then probably you can count many of these blessings as well. When we stop to think about it, there's not many people in our world today who can say as much. In fact, there's not many people in the whole of history who, who are as blessed as we are. But let me introduce you to another Paul. I met Paul when I was in Zimbabwe with Tear Fund. He lives with his wife and children in a small rural community in a very dry and arid part of the country. He's a subsistence farmer. Now, Paul can list very few of the blessings that you and I can list. He was not born in a country of plenty. Very often, his nation has not been at peace. He didn't have the same opportunities for education and healthcare that you and I have had. And now, worst of all, he's being hit by our globally changing climate. When I was with Paul, he told me, we used to get five months of rain every year in this country. 
Now we only get three months of rain. Now Tear Fund's helping Paul and his family adapt to that changing climate so they can still get a good crop. But as he starts to get only two months of rain a year, only one month, or no rain at all, how will Paul and his family survive then? How different Paul's life is from ours. Now Jesus said, to those who much has been given, much will be expected. And he didn't say that to condemn us or make us feel guilty, but to challenge us and inspire us to action. I hope we can show you in this short film that um, the opportunities, the freedom, the wealth and the power we have can be used uh, by Jesus to help bring about a real difference to people like Paul. Uh, In many ways, this story of two Pauls is the story of our world. We are living in the best of times with some, but also in the worst of times. Many of us are living through a golden age. The number of children dying from preventable diseases has halved in our lifetime. In 1981, more than 50% of the planet's population were living in poverty. Today, that's down to just 17%. More children go to school than ever before. Less women are dying in childbirth, and disease is in retreat everywhere. Now, if we were to imagine the last 5,000 years of human history and drew a picture of what that might look like, along here, we see the time from 3,000 BC to today. And up here, we see people's level of development from poverty to wealth. We find for most of human history, most people everywhere were living like Paul in Zimbabwe, or much, much worse, in poverty, with poor education, bad health care. But then in the last 200 years, and especially in the last 50 years, an incredible change has happened, as more and more people have lifted themselves out of poverty, whole nations have developed, and more people are living like you and I do today. Now, this is due in part to the amazing focus work that charities have done. And thank you so much for your support for Tear Fund. It's also due to the work that governments have done. So when you campaign to cancel unpayable third world debt, to make poverty history, or for enough food for everyone, you again help to make a really big change. But mainly this has been due to economic development, as more and more nations have joined our global economy. So this is good news, right? Well, unfortunately, there's a terrible paradox. All of this progress has come with a huge price. Now, if we imagine this axis also represented the state of our environment, down here it's in a pretty poor shape. Up here it's doing well. Then for most of human history, while people were living in poverty, the environment was in a pretty good shape. It was giving us what we need to survive. But during the last 200 years, where we've seen this great progress, we've seen a terrible downward trend in our environment. All of this progress has come at a huge price. The greenhouse gas emissions we put into the atmosphere have doubled in the last 40 years alone. 1.2 billion people and rising now live in areas of extreme water stress. We're using more resources than the world can produce naturally. It's been estimated that we are living as if we have three planets when we really only have one. That's because this great progress that's been driven by our global economy is driven by an economy that's based on fossil fuels and high physical consumption of limited resources. That's why Paul in Zimbabwe is now only getting three months of rain a year instead of five, and his situation is getting worse. Now, what does God see in all of this? Well, when God made the world, he made it with an abundance of blessing, everything that we need, and he said it was good. And then amazingly, three and a half thousand years ago, when the people of God entered the Holy Land, he gave them rules of how to run the economy of their day, so that it would lift everyone out of poverty, but do so without wrecking the environment or leading to extreme inequality. 
the laws of Sabbath and Jubilee that we find in Numbers, Leviticus and Deuteronomy ensured that the land was divided equally between God's people, that the very poorest were provided for, that there were periods of rest in which the land was allowed to recover, and that every 49 or 50 years, the year of Jubilee provided a complete reset where all debts were cancelled and any inequality that had built up was ended. Now we know that these laws were never fully implemented, but fast forward to Luke chapter 4, and Jesus sets out a manifesto for his mission. He goes right back to the laws of Jubilee and uses them to illustrate a picture of what the kingdom of God coming in our midst begins to look like. Now you and I live in between the time when Jesus first came and when he will return in glory to complete his work and and wipe away every tear. So in this in-between time, what can we learn from those stories from the Old Testament, those old laws of Jubilee and Sabbath? How might we begin to apply them to our economy today? And how would that change the way we do development? We stand at a crossroads. If we do nothing and carry on with business as usual, we will end up with an environmental collapse that will undo all that progress we've seen and knock people back into poverty. Or we could take a different path and begin to rewire our global economy along biblical principles so that it still lifts everybody out of poverty, but does so without wrecking the planet and without driving up extreme inequality. A restorative economy. We are the generation that will get to make that choice. So how do we do this? That's a massive ask. Surely it's the job of a business or government to make these changes, not ordinary people like you and me. Well, as we said earlier, I think we find that very often we have a lot more power than we sometimes realise. Now, friends of Tearfund, who are right at the top of the oil industry in big business and wanted to do the right thing for the environment, would tell us that it was very hard for them to move because if they move radically in the right direction and their share price collapsed as a result, the board would simply sack them, bring someone else in, and they'd be right back to where they started. So they were always pointing to government and saying, actually, we need you in government to legislate, create a level playing field so that all companies have to move in the same direction at the right time. But if you're in government, if you want to do that, but your electorate don't want you to do that, if it's political suicide to take that action, then it's very hard for them to move as well. So those in government would point to you and me, the voters, the electorate, the people who give them their mandate. We are the ones who vote for our politicians and buy services and products from businesses. We are the ones with real power. And we shouldn't be surprised about this. When we look back, we see that many positive changes originate with ordinary people like you and me building movements whether it's the cancellation of unpayable third world debt, the end of the slave trade, or increasing the aid budget for the world's poorest countries, it all begins with ordinary people like you and me sending signals to our governments that these are the changes that we want to see. That's why, as Tier Fund's advocacy director, these days I find myself spending less and less time in the corridors of power and more time in the church halls of power. We are the ones with real power. We are the ones with whom change begins. And when we look back even further, we find that God has always worked this way. Jesus didn't use political leaders or captains of industry to found his church. He chose fishermen and tax collectors. A little bit later, Paul, writing to the early church in Corinth, said, Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. 
That is why Tier Fund's current campaign is called Ordinary Heroes. We are the inheritors of this tradition in our generation. We need ordinary people like you and me to begin to make the changes in our own lifestyles and to campaign to our political leaders so that we can together begin to shift our world to a restorative economy that lifts people out of poverty without wrecking the planet. We would love you to join us. You can start by taking the latest action today. Please come with us in living our lives more justly and speaking out to our political leaders. It really does make a difference. You might also want to consider how you can get together with others and do things locally. Please let us know what you decide to do and if there's any way in which Tearfund can support you in that. We are all called to be world changers and ordinary heroes, to live lives of meaning and purpose that begin to change the world around us one step at a time. We are the people that God has called to this task. We are the ones that we have been waiting for. I've seen that video quite a few times now and it still really challenges me every time I watch it. And it really excites me as well at the prospect that I might have a part to play in all of this. So before I say any more, I'd love us to just get back in our groups again for a few more minutes. Um, have a chat about the video, what you thought about it, what struck you, um, anything you didn't agree with or didn't sit very well with you. You might like to reconsider the question that we started with about do we as Christians have any responsibility to the environment, and if so, why? Um, and just see whether you have a think about, a chat about whether you would answer that question any differently now having seen that video. Maybe you would, maybe not. But have a, have a little chat about the video uh, and how you felt about it, and then we'll come back together in about five minutes. The video has shown us, and hopefully you've been able to talk about this a bit more in your groups, we've seen that there's, there's more to this issue than just the environment. And there's strong links between our treatment of the planet and broader issues of justice and equality. And we know that justice is something that God cares about deeply and that his plan was for a world where there wasn't extreme inequality and where everyone was <coughs> provided for, but without destroying the planet. So to build on the video, I just want to share um, a few figures that shine a spotlight on how unequal the world currently is and the, the part that we play in that. I don't do this to make us feel guilty, but I do think it's important that we acknowledge it and that we understand the situation that we're in. So the first one is that the annual carbon footprint, carbon footprint being the amount of carbon that, or carbon equivalent that we as an individual or an organisation, whatever you happen to be talking about, emits per year. The annual carbon footprint of the average Briton is roughly 116 times that of the average Ethiopian. If it makes you feel any better, the carbon footprint of the average American is twice that of the average Briton, so we're kind of doing better than they are. Secondly, if we were to share the Earth's resources fairly between everyone on the planet, we Britons would need to cut our carbon footprint to about 20% of what it currently is. In the UK, the average ecological footprint which means the amount of land that we need to sustain our lifestyles, is 5.6 hectares per person. The sustainable level is 1.8 hectares per person, so we're about three times over sustainable level. In the UK every year we throw away approximately 7 million tonnes of food, and meanwhile around about 800 million people in the world currently don't have enough to eat. And a US government report estimates that climate change could make another 175 million people go hungry by 2018. It's kind of grim reading, isn't it? Now, I can't vouch for the exact accuracy of all the figures. I did quite a lot of research, um, but where I came across contradictions, I, uh, I quoted, have quoted the most conservative figure. So in actual fact, the, the actual figure could end up being worse than that. 
But I think it's clear that our contribution as a nation to the problem is far greater than that of many areas of the world. And in general, it's the areas with the smaller environmental impacts that suffer the most from environmental degradation. We'll all be familiar with Jesus' commandments about loving God and loving others. And this is, here it is in the message version. So Jesus said, the first commandment in importance is, Listen Israel, the Lord your God is one. So love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence and energy. And here is the second. Love others as well as you love yourself. There is no other commandment that ranks with these. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we loving others if our lifestyles constrain those of other people? And if the way that we choose to live is to their detriment? And I think if, you know, if we think that's important, then I think it demands something from us. And I, uh, I found a quote from Tier Fund. A lot of those um, statistics I, I looked at earlier, incidentally, are from, are from Tier Fund. I also came across this, this quote, which I think speaks quite clearly and quite challengingly to this point. If we are to worship God with heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbours as ourselves, then we need to change our lifestyles radically. At present, the average Briton uses such a large amount of the Earth's resources that we would need more than three planet Earths if everybody in the world wanted to live the same way. Obviously, we saw that in the video. This is both an issue of justice for the world's poor and an issue of worship, as this excessive consumerism is actually an idolatry of greed, pure spiritual cholesterol. I felt like I'd been physically smacked when I first read that. It was like, wow. And again, you know, I'm not sharing this to make anyone feel guilty, but I think it is really challenging, and I think we, it's something that we need to take seriously. But of course, changing our lifestyles is easier said than done. In this part of the world, we live crowded lives, we live in a consumer society, we face cultural expectations that we should be constantly be upgrading our car and our house and our this and our that. And in reality, we do live in a context, in a society that makes it very difficult to make the kinds of changes that we might want to make to live in a way that is sustainable and in a way that promotes um, equality and justice. So what can we do? How can we join the dots between the issues of the world, our Christian faith, and how we live our lives? And how can we enjoy the blessings that God's given us, but to do so in a way that doesn't damage the world, doesn't damage others, and doesn't damage the chances of future generations? And before we go into groups again, I just want to share a little bit about my own journey and my experience. I'm studying for a Master's in Sustainability and Responsibility um, at the moment. And I think it's been more personally challenging and personally significant than I ever expected it to be. I did it in the first place mainly for professional reasons, um, but actually it's been an incredible kind of personal journey. And among other things, it's, it's really set me on quite a journey of linking what I'm learning to the way that I'm living my life and how it relates to my Christian faith. So I just want to share with a, few thing, a few of the things that... that Brian and I, because he's kind of had to be involved by default, <laughs> um, have tried over the last year or 18 months or so, um, and some of the things that, that we're still exploring. We're not experts at all, and we're not necessarily getting it right, but we're kind of feeling our way, having some quite robust discussions along the way, um, but also having quite a lot of fun exploring things. So um, one of the first things we did when, when this, this stuff started becoming relevant and important and sort of becoming part of our discussions as a family was we installed solar panels and we bought an electric car. One of our cars needed replacing anyway and we thought, well, you know, let's go for it and buy an electric car and sort of see what happens. Um, and it, apart from anything else, it's spawned quite a lot of interesting discussions with people about why we've done it and how good it is and, you know, whether we'd buy it again and, and so forth. 
I suppose I should, I should um, caveat that by saying, you know, we do have two cars. One of them is not a, an electric car. But I, I'd say those two decisions in some ways were quite, were quite easy to make. You know, buying a car is a one-off decision. Once you've got it, you drive it. And the solar panels also, you know, we were, I suppose, lucky that we could afford the initial outlay. Uh, it does pay for itself eventually. And it is great knowing that we're generating quite a lot of our own energy. So that was two, two initial things. I've started supporting a lot more campaigns signing a lot more petitions. I've even been known to uh, write to our MP on a couple of issues, which I never would have done before. And uh, that was something that was mentioned um, in, in the video. And I think we've had a bit of a discussion about that in, in this group here and how much of a difference that makes. I think I'm more convinced now that it makes more of, a more of a difference than I used to think it did. The more people that put their hands up and get their voice into the mix, the more difference it will make. So I've started doing that. Purchasing choices is another area both food and other things. Trying to spend our money well and trying to spend our money on, with companies and brands that are trying to be more responsible. So in our case, that means sometimes having to think a bit, more, a bit further ahead uh, and not just resorting to Amazon on the last day because you haven't quite got around to it and it's okay because they'll deliver the next day. But um, I'm trying to buy gifts, for example, from Tradecraft because it supports people over, small business owners overseas researching the brands that we buy from and kind of having a bit of a short list of companies that we feel are, are, are better than others. I mean, none of them are perfect, but, you know, trying to kind of move more of our money into to be spent more positively. Food has been quite an interesting area. That was something that started off a couple, about 18 months ago, I suppose, for us. It started with, you know, just trying to spend a little bit less money in the supermarket and a little bit more money in local butchers and local greengrocers and that kind of thing. We started growing our own veg, which has been mixed in terms of its success <laughs> but I think yeah even the things that don't work out um, we've got, actually got quite a flourishing little veg patch at the moment which is great and I think you know even when it doesn't work out it's been great in terms of getting our children to understand where food comes from because it's very easy for kids these days to go into shop and just think it just grows on the supermarket shelves and actually for them to understand that I remember Alex when he was about he must have been five at the time we planted our first tomato plants and we planted them one day and the next day he was like can we have tomatoes for lunch <laughs> well you can but not from our plants and just getting them to understand that things take time to grow and you can watch them grow and you can watch them get bigger and I think that's actually really important we're often very detached from the food that we eat and where it comes from so I think that has been really, a really positive thing and actually on that note thank you to Marion and to Natalie who cooked baked the cakes and the, the shortbreads and the dips and stuff for, for tonight we really wanted to well it would have seemed a little bit odd to have an evening talking about sustainability and not give any thought to where the food came from and both Natalie and Marion spent a lot of time making sure that we sourced the ingredients and all the food from, from local places and there is a list somewhere of exactly what came from where so, yes, you can, you can go home safe in the knowledge that you've eaten sustainably this evening. Our latest area of investigation is eating less meat. Uh, I was going to put some statistics up about that, but I kind of felt I was getting a bit too, too many statistics. But I, one of the things I've been quite shocked about recently is the high impact of, of meat, well, animal agriculture generally, so dairy as well as meat, on, on the climate, on climate change, um, and the high proportion of 
carbon emissions that it generates. Which is a really, really hard one because I'm married to a carnivorous South African who doesn't really want to stop eating meat. So we're having quite a lot of discussions at the moment about you know, what, what changes can we make that are not going to completely flip us upside down as a family but are going to make some sort of a difference. So that's, that's something we haven't really got very far with at the moment but it's, it's kind of on the, on the radar. But I hope that's given you a bit of an insight into just some of the things that one can do to, to make a difference and just sort of trying to be a bit more thoughtful, I guess, about, about lifestyles, really. So I suspect that our, our journey and our, our sort of um, experimenting is going to continue for some time to come. But I think it's really important and I'm really pleased to be, to be doing it. And I, I hope that what we're talking about this evening might inspire some of you, if you're not already doing something like that, to you know, think about what you might be able to do differently in order to lower your impact. Um, I guess the issue of, you know, does this really make a difference is something that we wrestle with quite a lot and I think also that came up a little bit um, in, in this group. Um, you know, if, even if every single person in this room went out and did something differently as a result and ate less meat and so forth, how much difference is it really going to make? And I think there's a few things I would say to that. One is that, you know, as Christians, I think we should be leading the way. If we think that something like this is important and that uh, the way we live our lives has an important impact, then whether or not we think it's going to have a, you know, a massive impact we should be leading the way. I think also, as the video pointed out, we have more power than we think, especially when we act collectively and especially when we galvanise other people to take action. So I think sometimes we, yeah, we, we don't, we don't realise how much power we actually have. And also, you never know when you're going to reach a tipping point. You never know when you're going to get to a, a point where so many people are acting in a certain way that actually that becomes the norm. We're rapidly approaching our 7 o'clock deadline, so um, we, we're going to need to draw things to a close. Um, I just want to make a quick plug for a book if anybody's interested in looking into this stuff further. This is called Just Living, Faith and Community in an Age of Consumerism by a lady called Ruth Valerio and I went to her book launch a few weeks ago and this is a really readable book and it's also one you can really dip in and out of.